Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. And we're very pleased to have Tony Birch on the line. Um, Tony recently actually won the a New South Wales Literary Prize for his novel The White Girl, um, which I hope is on your home isolation reading list. And uh, Tony's also written an essay in the latest Griffith Review on taking comfort in objects. And we've invited him on to speak more about this essay as it felt poignant right now to talk about tactile comforts when so many of us are missing hugging our friends and family members and um, many of us are hanging around our personal things at home a lot more than we have in the past. Uh, Tony's essay is called Things of Stone and Wood and Wool, Taking Comfort in Objects and it's really great to have you on with us again, Tony, on the grapevine. Thanks and um, congrats on your recent award too. Oh, thank you very much and um, thanks for having me. And this essay is a very personal one, reflecting on your grief at the death of your younger brother and also the solace you found in simple, meaningful things like woolen jumpers. Did you already have a sense um, before your grief how comforting you found certain things, certain simple things, Tony? Yeah, it is a a lifelong um, habit and learning so that I've always been a a collector and um, in the essay I talk about that that ranges from um, um, having op shop fever for about 60 years. Um, I also have collections of beach glass that I've been collecting for years. Um, I have a, a weird relationship with pine cones, so I have pine cones all over the house, and of course um, woolen jumpers or woolen everything. So I've got I've got everything from merino um, underwear to beanies and um, jumpers and scarves and gloves. And um, so I actually love winter because um, with climate change I don't get to wear these things as much. So yeah, and and I think the wool it is it is obviously for all of us a comfort thing, and I think there'd be many people who are in ISO at the moment, probably sitting under a warm blanket watching, binging on TV or, or reading. So there is a genuine issue of comfort. For me, the relationship between this and, and found objects or secondhand objects, I just love the speculation about what, you know, what previous life they had. What was the experience of the object? And you don't know that, of course, but it just adds to the, your sort of imagination and curiosity a lot more. Yeah, and you write really beautifully of um, the experience attending um, a friend's father's funeral and they had these items that they sort of laid out and invited people to collect as, um, you know, a way of, of remembering this, this person and I guess um, carrying their memories forward from then. And it kind of, the, the way you wrote about it really kind of highlighted how, I mean, this was a particular object that you didn't necessarily know a whole lot about the history of, but it's one that has much broader meaning to yourself as a reminder of kind of your dear friend and and a reminder to, I guess, think about them and empathise with them as well, which I think is a really interesting meditation on the power of objects when we don't necessarily know exactly what their history is. 
Yeah, and I think in this case that um, it was at the funeral of an elderly man who'd had a really great life. And after the funeral, we were in the church hall in the Dangnong Ranges, and there was a table of these objects. And as I wrote in the essay, none of the objects would be of any you know, material value. They were all second-hand that he'd used. Yeah, there was, I know there was a novel. Um, there were second-hand tools. There were some crockery, I think. And I picked up this beautiful, um, quite heavy, quite beautiful and beautifully coloured stone and it was the object that I took home and put on my desk at home and it is interesting that you say that because I, while I knew that he'd picked where he picked it up I didn't know what life it'd have and clearly this stone you know how long it's been in existence is, is unknown to any of us but because I also work in issues of climate justice and indigenous knowledge where every time I picked up the stone I actually was struck by it, its um, strength and what I actually termed its intelligence and I thought well alongside the stone we're pretty stupid you know we're doing some really stupid things so that it made me think about the intelligence and power of inanimate objects as well so I wouldn't have even considered that had I not held that beautiful stone in my hand so it's remarkable that those relationships can create stories or that they, yeah, they can create ideas for you to to utilize in other ways. I actually really love it how you kind of link those big somehow amorphous type you know massive issues long-term issues with very simple objects is that sort of how you think in general tony to be able to kind of link yeah, climate change to to a stone well i can tell you i'll give you a beautiful quote here for your for your audience um, I was giving a talk at the Post-Colonial Institute in North Melbourne one time, and one of my very closest friends is the Aboriginal actus, activist Gary Foley, and the person introducing me, who was an Aboriginal woman called Marcia Langton, said I had a really big brain, but I kept bad company. Um, so <laughs> I think I do have a, an insatiable sense of curiosity, and I also have some great friends, but um, I think that anyone who sticks at the writing game for a long time is always a person who is curious so that I think when you see something or when you hold something and you start to riff with it, your curiosity sort of is boundless so that I think for me the relationship between the local and universal, between local and global, it's a fairly um, direct link. And when I think about whether I'm thinking about it, the grief over the death of my brother or where I was thinking about issues like climate justice, I always start very close to home. But to me, none of these issues are, are of much value unless I think about their relevance to other people around me. And yeah, when my brother died, I, I was actually had to go to Japan very soon after. And it was interesting the way that I was struck when I was there by the way that people in Japan deal with grief. And I found that experience and that relationship to my personal grief also really helpful so it's about being attuned to other people as well of course of other objects and i mean what i really love the experience of reading your piece because it kind of made me slow down and, and think about things and in a way that sort of mirrors the role of these objects as sort of memory carrying vessels as well when we can see and we can hold something it, it causes us to stop and think and kind of step outside the the pace of, of life, whether that's, um, you know, education or work or, or whatever it might be in our kind of busy, busy day-to-day lives itself. Um, how are you going at the moment with with writing, I guess, being in some form of isolation um, amid the pandemic and, and so on? Are you finding that this is a time for sort of broader reflection for you? Do you find it sort of easier to write in these times or more challenging? No, I've actually, I mean, it's interesting because at the start of the lockdown, and um, I mean, I spent a lot, a lot of time on my own anyway, 
whether it be writing or walking and running. But at the, at the lockdown, I'd, I was doing a new collection of short stories, and I think I had about 30,000 words. And I've actually now finished the collection and written another 30,000. So it's obviously, wow. been, <laughs> it's obviously been good for me, but you raise, I think, a more important point. So, yeah, I, I, I function quite well personally. I've got a really big family, and, yeah, we've kept an eye on each other. We've looked after each other, and, and we're really doing well compared to the difficulties that some people have faced. I think that you raise another issue, and it'll be, it's going to be so interesting to see how we come out of this because we've been forced into a situation where many of us have had to slow down, and obviously it's difficult for people who don't have jobs and income at the moment. That's terrible. But it has been a challenge to the way we think and act, and what I'm hoping, and I'm, I'm probably hoping too idealistically, that people will slow down, that people will alter their thinking and possibly think a little differently about what's important because what it has shown is that again materially there are many things that are not helpful um the so-called thing this thing called the market the market doesn't care about us the market has no conscious so we need to think about you know money materialism these things we i'm not being sort of naive about people needing money to, to live and eat and to pay rent but to consider what it is that we value and to try and move forward in ways where we keep those values at the forefront and don't just go back to the same grind if we if we're capable of avoiding it and i know again that some people aren't because they're in relatively quite disempowered positions but people like myself who have the opportunity to act and and be differently, I, I, I'm going to take this opportunity to think very seriously about what I do in the next phase of my life, which will include um, not working. I'm actually leaving my academic position in less than two months, which I'm really looking forward to. Mm. We're speaking with Tony Birch and um, uh, reflecting on an essay he's written um, for the latest Griffith Review called Things of Stone and Wood and Wool. And yeah, that's really interesting. There's been a bit of a rhythm, hasn't there, through the kind of through March and April, and now we're into. May and I'm speaking to you know friends of mine, particularly those in the creative realms. May's feeling a little bit more um, kind of productive for some yeah. of them, and I also you know starting to hear people say, well, well, what's the first thing you're going to do? When, you know, who are you going to hang out with first, or whatever, when you're allowed to start hanging out with people? And I thought yeah. that's really interesting. This idea that these uh, who you're going to spend time with is is a really conscious decision. All of a sudden, it's like yeah, going back to those kind of you know what matters to me most or what matters to the people around me most right now and just being very conscious of that it's it feels different yeah and i mean there, there is a direct direct metaphor here to the objects and direct link and that is again that when you pick something up or there's something that you treasure it's not who it matters to in the sense of material or what is its value to some external you know world it's it's intimate value to you to those around you you know i used to teach creative writing at melbourne university and one of the things i used to say to students you know if you're from a migrant family ask your mum and dad when they came to australia what did they bring with them what was the object that they treasured most and usually it might be something like a cooking a cooking pot that a mother gave a daughter who you know they cooked on it it might be a teapot it might be a rug um or to say to people okay what it is that you treasure what's in the, you know that sort of drawer at the side of your bed um objects that you would never part with and they're never anything of value there there's something of really sort of strong emotional connection to other people like i i mean the the most precious thing i have are my um nana's knitting needles because yeah. she she used i saw her using them all yeah. the time and there they are in a little and my daughter uses them and i just love it when i see her use the old 
And that's a really good example of it both being um, emotional, symbolic. It carries a narrative, so that carries a story of your grandmother. And it is tactile. You, you can, yeah, just when you've mentioned that there, I can hear those knitting needles sort of clicking away. You can imagine someone's hands you know, producing something. So it's not just, oh, they're nice because they belong to Nan. There's a whole story. There's a whole life attached to those knitting needles and those stories are stories of value so I would want to emphasize to people that when I was at I was at Melbourne University for 20 years the dirtiest word I ever heard well not from my end from the end of the sort of hipster academics was nostalgia they're really yeah nostalgia can only be a dirty word and they don't understand nostalgia in the sense often that Europeans do particularly non-English speaking Europe nostalgia is not a dirty word it's a really deep psychological state about how attachment to objects places and people and the emotional value of that and of course the emotional loss when we lose that so I once made the terrible error of getting rid of a cardigan to an op shop not that I wouldn't give I do recycle those stuff I missed it so badly within a day I had to drive out to Broadmeadows and buy it back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've, and I've done that a couple of times because I, I do buy from op shops and then, of course, I give back. I've gone into an op shop and I have bought the object that I donated. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Um, I was kind of thinking about the... the uh, whether it's kind of a conscious process of, of collecting, because in the case, I mean, I, I reading your piece prompted me to kind of look through this um, box of, I guess, uh, you know, important possessions that have kind of I've taken around from different houses and that sort of thing, and found yeah. things like old tape measures from um, from my grandfather and old tools and things that have been passed down to me. And they're not yeah. things that I have great knowledge of, um, you know, exactly what they were used for and when they yeah. were used and whether my dad used them, all that sort of stuff. But I've kept them yeah. because they're important and they prompt these kinds of memories. But then there are things, like I was thinking about the last day of primary school and deciding to pick up this really kind of curious looking stick that I'd walk past every day and carrying that from house to house as well. And that's just something that I don't know why I did it or why I decided that was something yeah. worth hanging on to. But I wonder for you, I mean, you mentioned that you, you have been collecting things for a long time, but are, are you always kind of conscious of, of why you collect and why certain no. objects are worth keeping? You're, you're, you're really onto something, and what I'd say to you is, whatever you do, don't burn that stick, because <laughs> one, one day you're going to know why, and this is this is so important. Now, I mean, obviously for me as a writer, it comes into sort of my realm of thinking, but I mean, I won't go into detail, but I, there are specific instances where I have collected the same type of object for years and not known why and then suddenly one day I've been writing and an idea or a scene comes into it so the one I can mention briefly I, I, I'm a lifetime runner as well and running and, and foraging go really well together you find all sorts of shit when you're going for a run <laughs> um, I used to run past the Carlton Cemetery on the Ligon Street side, and what happens is that the the artificial flowers on the greys, when you get a southwesterly, it blows those flowers across the cemetery and they get stuck in that wrought iron fence. And for years I had a, a contract with the dead, was that I would never steal flowers off a dead person's grave, but if they made it to the fence, I could take them home because I could never put them back to, on the grave anyway. So people used to see me, like my daughters, my young daughters who are now in their 20s, people would say, I saw your dad running down the street with a bunch of artificial flowers what's, what's going on there so I would take those flowers home and I ended up with literally 
I would wash them and put them in a, a plastic bag. I ended up with bags and bags and bags of them. And in 2010, I was writing my novel, Blood, and there was a scene in the cemetery where the brother and sister go into a cemetery, and there's this moment where the girl, Rachel, finds this beautiful bunch of flowers. And literally, all of that collecting came down to that one scene, but it mattered. Yeah. It mattered. And then luckily, once I'd written it, I was then able to dispose of the flowers, which my daughter used them, by the way, to for the grade six graduation at a primary school and decorated all the flowers in the school hall, which everyone loved until the principal got her to come up the front and said, oh, thank you, Nina, for decorating the tables. Where did you get the first set? My dad stole them from the cemetery. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure there's people listening to this, Tony, that feel um, a great sense of relief that they've been told by too many people for too long to get rid of their staff. Why are you keeping that staff, you know? Yeah. And um, here is at least a little bit more permission than they've already given themselves to keep hold of items that have value to them for no particular reason. They just do. And I don't know her name. I'm not sure. Is it Marie Kondo, the sort of declutter mm. goddess? I'm her nemesis. <laughs> She has many nemesis. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in your camp, Tony. Good. Well, um, we uh, recommend the essay to people. Grab hold of it, Griffith Review. You can read Tony Birch and many others um, writing in that one. And, um, and Tony's essay is called Things of Stone and Wood and Wool. And um, thanks, Tony. We look forward to seeing your short story collection coming out soon and, and whatever else that you're um, putting your mind to at the moment. Thank you very much for having me. Have a lovely day. You too. Um, Tony Birch there. Always great to have him on 3RRR. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Clean will Australia's economic recovery be? This is the question. Um, many experts see a clear opportunity for stimulus spending to be designed to revive the economy and also to clean up industries and practices best left in the last century. This Wednesday, a whole lot of people are going to come together as part of the Smart Energy Conference, which is being held online now. Um, newspaper Renew Economy is hosting the event together with the Smart Energy Council and the editor of Renew Economy is Giles Parkinson and a familiar voice to Triple R. It's nice to have you back, Giles. Well, thanks for having me back. And you've got uh, four state governments attending this conference on stimulus, including the Premier of Queensland, and energy ministers from the ACT, South Australia and WA. Is this a sign that stimulus spending, at least at the state level, could be used to cut emissions from the Australian economy at the same time as growing the economy? Well, I think you'd hope so. You'd hope so. Yeah, there's certainly a sign of a lot of the interest. In fact, look, we do have the Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk, who we understand is going to be making um, some sort of announcement, which is pretty exciting. And uh, we've got four state ministers. So um, Victoria's Energy Minister, Lily D'Ambrosio, will also be there, plus a whole bunch of experts um, from around the country, you know, people like Ross Garner, Oliver Yates, Simon Holmes Court. Um, and that's pretty, that's pretty good. There's a lot of interest now in how to calibrate the post-pandemic recovery and, and what form that takes. And uh, I think, as you said in your introduction, there's a lot of interest and a lot of value is seen 
in investing in clean energy and things that reduce emissions and things that have a long-term value, not just in money out the door so people can buy televisions and things like that, which is great to keep some businesses going and, and some short-term in, in, um, injection. But we really need to get long-term value out of the money that we spend and the industries that we encourage. And I guess it's fair to say that there's a lot more interest here from the state governments um, in the clean energy um, equation, not so much yet from the federal government. I mean, they can barely bring themselves to mention the words wind and solar. Um, and uh, we haven't really seen much from them, although, although on Monday morning um, the government did announce that it was putting $300 million into the Clean Energy Finance Corporation to support renewable hydrogen, which is a good thing. It's a long-term thing. It's a new technology, and that's, and that's fine. But um, one also questions how much money they'll also put into uh, sort of dirty hydrogen, you know, brown, brown coal hydrogen, gas hydrogen, which would probably be less appealing and um, less beneficial. And we've seen, uh, I mean, sort of quite far reaching changes over the past month or so in terms of, you know, for example, welfare measures and um, doubling of the job seeker payment and all those sorts of things that we couldn't have imagined before the pandemic. Do you think this climate we're in gives us an opportunity to, I guess, um, you know, work through some of those ideological blockages that have really plagued climate and energy policy for, for many, many years? I really, 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 really hope so, but I'm not too sure it's going to happen. Um, I think to some extent you've almost seen an entrenching of the um, positions. Um, I think a lot of people in the Conservatives have been quite sort of horrified that all these promises to bring balanced budgets and, you know, um, have, have been thrown out the window out of necessity because how else do you respond to such a disaster as the pandemic and such an impact on the economy? So I don't think anyone's begrudging uh, the fact that the money has gone out um, and is helping people in desperate needs and businesses you know, who are really struggling and some of them basically got no business left. I think the question then happens, what happens next? And I think there's a big pressure from some of the Conservatives say, so that's it, that's it. You know, we're back to where we were before when we're sort of thinking about the next step. And it's interesting to hear... Australia's Energy Minister, Angus Taylor, saying, oh, this is a great opportunity for a gas-led recovery. Mm. And the Resources Minister saying, oh, this is a great time to invest in coal and gas. And you've just got to be thinking, you're kidding yourselves, aren't you? But um, that's where the ideology seeps in. That's where you're going to see all these vested interests, all these very powerful lobby groups putting themselves in position and, and really trying to get some of that money um, directed towards their own industries. And it's interesting you mentioned the gas-led recovery, which has been um, some of the comments coming from Angus Taylor's office and from the minister himself. And I think he wrote a column in The Australian last week, also having a look at um, fuel reserves and, and the so forth. ARENA, which is the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, actually came out with a different view on gas. Uh, and they've sort of called into question whether it is useful. Um, I mean, do you think that there, there might there might be a change in, in outlook from the federal government if agencies like that are presenting different evidence or, or, or not, Giles? Look, the, um, the, the COVID-19 pandemic has been fascinating because we've seen government ministers and the prime minister um, listen with great respect and uh, with great diligence to the experts. And every time they've been talking, they've had a, a medical expert standing next to the chief medical officer or something like that. That's never been the case um, with climate and energy. We wish it were. Um, I haven't actually seen it yet. Look, gas as a transition fuel is something that was promoted 
globally about a decade ago. Most people think that it's gone past the time. Now, one of the problems with gas is that it's actually really expensive to extract and it just can't compete with wind, solar and battery storage. And we saw a new report come out last week from Bloomberg New Energy Finance, which said quite clearly that wind and solar were way, way, way below all the other generation um, um, options for low electricity and battery storage and falling a lot. And so really gas has no role to play. We talk about low gas prices at the moment, but that's simply because there's no market for it. Gas prices at this level really offer no incentive for extraction because it costs it, it costs more money to extract them than you can sell in the market. So, you know, unless they give more subsidies to them... Um, I, I can't see how it would happen, but um, yeah, you would like them to. Uh, one of the things that we'd really like to see, and I think a few people have been writing columns about this, and I'm writing another one today, is that you've listened to the experts on climate and health. Let's now listen to the experts. Sorry, you've listened to the experts on on the pandemic and health. Let's please now listen to the experts on climate and energy. It's interesting um, to reflect on the role of experts throughout the government's response to the pandemic, because the other thing that I think has been really notable is the role of um, of the states, particularly Victoria and New South Wales, in kind of influencing the Commonwealth's response to um, to the pandemic. And, I mean, given that we have all states kind of signed up or, or committed to a zero net emissions by 2050 target, what does that mean, do you think, for energy policy going forward? I mean, do you think states would be looking at what's happened and think, oh, we perhaps have a bit more leverage in national, in directing national policy than um, beforehand? Well, that's really interesting um, because what we've seen with the, uh, the relationship between the federal, um, the federal government and the state is, you know, that they've actually been working together. Mm. Um, they've been respectful of each other. They haven't had the same view. Their own medical advice differs slightly. You know, we've seen that in schools and things like that, but they've been largely respectful and say, okay, this is the overall direction we're going. If you guys want to go at a slightly different pace, go earlier, go harder or, or whatever, then that's up to you, but this is the overall direction we're going. The problem with climate and energy is that from the federal government, we've had no overall direction of where we're going. So the states have basically taken up their own plans and have been mocked and derided and ridiculed by the federal government for doing so. So Mm. it would be fantastic if the federal government just simply said, "Okay, we've signed up for the Paris Climate Treaty. That doesn't just mean a 2020 target and a 2030 target. That means a long-term 2050 target. Let's do it. Let's agree that we've got to get to zero emissions because that's what the experts tell us we need to do to avoid catastrophic uh, climate change. The states, if you want to go a different pattern because you know, you've got a lot of coal generators, you've got a lot of gas, or you've got this, or you've got that, then that's fine. But let's just set a national course. And if the states need to go at different paces, then that's fine. But they've all got the same outcome, which is zero emissions by 2050. Some of them will be able to get there a lot quicker because of their individual circumstances. And I suppose we are seeing them go at a different pace, um, South Australia most notably, but as you say, it hasn't been seen necessarily always as a positive. I should remind people we're speaking with Giles Parkinson from Renew Economy. Um, Speaking um, about well, we started speaking about a, a conference that, um, that Renew Economy is co-hosting this coming Wednesday, all about stimulus and perhaps economic recovery could be renewables-led. And I mean, one thing that we need to know always, Giles, is what is actually possible. And we heard last week also that the Australian Energy Market um, Organisation (AEMO) has confirmed that our electricity grid could handle, you know, 75% renewables in the next five years by 2025. Now, is this something seen as, as quite a comfort, do you think, to the energy ministers that you're going to have presenting at your conference on, on Wednesday? 
Oh, absolutely. Look, you only need to go back about 10 or 15 years to hear people, when people were sort of saying, oh, you can't have more than 10% wind and solar on the grid, or you can't have more than 15% and gradually you'll ease and what have you. So the AEMO report um, came out last week was really quite important. It just basically meant that all those myths about you can't have wind and solar power in the modern economy, um, you know, the, the grid will fall over if there's too much of this variable source. They're saying, well, no, that's not true. We can actually accommodate up to 75%. We have the technical ability. What they are short of at the moment is energy market rules and designs and regulatory procedures that actually recognise that. So everything that we've got in place now for market design and regulations is set around centralised coal-fired power. So basically what we've got to do is change the rules and change the regulations to adapt to this new technology, as you would, you know, when you're moving from the horse and cart to the car or from the landline to the mobile phones. You, you know, you, you adapt to new technologies. It's kind of a given. But in Australia, the regulatory process um, and change has been like a glass just been so slow, so frustrating. There's been so much inertia and resistance there, and I think this is a bit of a plea to to have um, have that change. And look, you mentioned South Australia and their levels. I mean, they were already at well over 100% renewables on occasion, and just just wind and solar. The two states with the most ambitious renewable energy targets in Australia are South Australia, which is aiming for net 100% wind and solar by 2030, Tasmania, which is aiming for 200%. Uh, renewables by 2040. Are you going um, to highlight the colour of their governments? They are both coalition conservative governments. But guess what they haven't got? They haven't got the domestic coal industry. And you start to wonder, uh, the ACT is a Labor government which is already at 100% renew renewables, no coal industry in the ACT. Free of coal, it seems that even conservative governments can actually push the envelope on the transition to renewables and things like that. All the other states are just laboured with this horrible weight, this intense lobbying, this power that the coal industry seems to have over, um, over you know, I, I, and I'd say coalition and Labor governments. And, and, I mean, you have the conference coming up this, um, this week, Giles, and, I mean, it'll be held online, I imagine, obviously, because um, we can't all get together in these times we live in. What's your hope out of that, ultimately? I mean, what do you hope to achieve from, um, from the conference this week? We hope that it can change the conversation. We hope that we can identify opportunities, um, get a lot more people on the same page. Um, the dangers of these sort of things is that you get a lot of people agreeing with each other, talking to each other and agreeing with each other even more. But um, hopefully we can actually get some more news, get some more thinking out there and, um, and, and make it more obvious to even the federal government that um, this is a really good path to follow. You know, we, the federal government seems to be convinced that the world will continue taking Australia's gas and coal. Um, that's not entirely clear. Um, the rest of the world is moving away from these fossil fuels, and you just don't want the Australian economy, which depends so much on its exports, doesn't find itself with no market, unless it can actually create a new market. And that could be in renewable hydrogen or other new technologies, which we can export to the world because we've got such great resources. And I suppose just to bring it right back from um, the kind of poles and wires type idea to people's homes, there is some concern at the moment that consumer power prices uh, well, people might struggle paying their bills because a lot of people are working at home all day, having to heat their houses, particularly in places like um, Victoria, where the temperatures are dropping. Uh, are we looking to see some of the um, power prices go down through this period, do you think, Giles? Or, or is this something that um, is, is worth paying attention to for energy ministers as well as the effect? 
efficiency of people's homes. Yeah, look, power prices have so many components into them which are kind of fixed and very slow moving. And I'm thinking about the cost of networks, I'm thinking about the retail margins um, and, um, and some of the other things. The wholesale price in the, of electricity in Australia at the moment has been really, really low. The lowest, lowest it's been for more than five years in the last month or so, extremely low. But that takes a long time for that to seep through to consumer prices, businesses and, and, and um, households, mainly because like it's an annual reset of of of, of charges, so wholesale prices have averaged lo- a low price, and they seem predicted to average a low price in the future. Then that component of the bill comes down, but. You know, it's actually really frustrating for the for the consumers to see really low wholesale prices if they're aware of it, and then they still see their bills um, remaining stubbornly high. And um, I fear that because of all those inbuilt components, particularly the network costs and the retail margins, that'll take a, a bit of a while longer to for. Uh, consumer prices to come down, but I think there's a recognition that um, the utilities should be um, uh, treat people fairly um, if they're struggling to to pay the bills. I think there's a lot of scrutiny about what they're doing there, and I just think that there should be more initiatives which encourage low-income households to be connected with solar and um, and more pressure on those prices coming down. Um, I just think um, this really brings it into focus. So much that can be done. Um, all the best for the conference on Wednesday, Giles. No, thanks for having me. Uh, Giles Parkinson, uh, the newspaper Renew Economy, uh, and it updates continually on uh, what's happening in the kind of renewable energy sector. And uh, that conference um, being co-hosted there with the Smart Energy Council is taking place on Wednesday and it's free. Triple R. Great to have you with us on the grapevine this morning. And normally when we talk gun control in Australia, it's following a mass shooting in America or another country. And we count ourselves lucky here that we have such strict gun control laws. The most well-known period of reform uh, in Australia was following the Port Arthur massacre. And Prime Minister John Howard at the time and Deputy PM Tim Fisher ran a successful amnesty on newly banned weapons. But the story of gun violence and gun controls in this country goes way back, right to first contact between European colonialists and First Nations people. And it's a history that Nick Brody has written about in his new book. It's called Under Fire, How Australia's Violent History Led to Gun Control. And it's great to have you on Triple R, Nick. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. And I think people uh, would understand why someone would write a history about guns in the US, where we've even just seen um, in recent days how um, important they are in stories there around uh, violence and I suppose around the Bill of Rights and so forth. Why write a story about gun control in Australia? How significant have um, firearms been here, do you think? I think basically just as important as them. As in America, the difference is we've uh, reformed our gun laws to such an extent that we're now at risk of forgetting how important they were and how uh, they were just ubiquitous they were, basically, in Australian history and experience. It's only a generation since uh, many of us living in the suburbs had guns and went hunting as as a regular sort of recreational activity. Australia's changed quite a lot since the 1996 reforms. 
What was really interesting to me, Nick, and it's something that um, that kind of seems obvious, but I hadn't really properly contemplated before, was the role of guns in, uh, I suppose you could call it the colonial project in Australia in those sort of, um, you know, early 19th century and the like. Take us back there and, and, and tell us a story about exactly how guns figured in the mix of, um, of you know, British colonialists trying to uh, control um, Australia and, and, and control its first peoples. Yeah, well, of course, the first thing Cook did when he arrived was shoot at people. <laughs> it's just such a uh, such a big part of our colonial story. Colonisation in Australia would not have been possible without the firearm. It's basically the huge technological advantage that they presented. In recent years, there's been a bit of a tendency to, to revisit the frontier uh, wars and, and violence and rewrite Aboriginal agency into that, and that's all worthy project. But in doing that, sometimes I think people risk overstepping uh, uh, common sense. Firearms are extremely powerful, extremely dangerous weapons. And as the Industrial Revolution advanced during the course of this very period that Australia is being aggressively colonised, guns got cheaper, they got uh, more efficient, and therefore they got into the hands of all of the, the colonists. In fact, government aggressively encouraged settlers to have guns so that they could off any sort of Aboriginal resistance uh, and in some cases even gave them guns. Here in Tasmania where I'm sitting, at one point the colonial government ensured that about one in every 40 colonists had a gun to fight wars against the Aboriginal people here. And of course um, there was guns, as you say, through, through many of the colonies. How far back do we need to go when we start to see the first gun control laws though because there was a point at which um, we all, you know there was bush rangers there was there was convicts there was um, those brought over um, political prisoners basically from Ireland that you write about how far back was it that that those in, tro- in control of the colon- colonies wanted to know who had what weapon basically from the very start you know there's, there's a comprehensive set of regulations from in 1796 in Sydney which you can sort of use as a, as a touch of when there's concerted local government effort at controlling guns. And they're really concerned with ensuring that convicts don't have guns unless they've been specifically authorised to do so. There's many reasons convicts would have guns, not only for the protection of stock against Aboriginal incursion, for instance, but also just to go out and, and subsistence hunt. You know, the early days of the colony relied upon uh, the firearm to provide kangaroo meat so that people could survive, for instance. Uh, but the government at that point wanted to really make sure that only those convicts who were authorised to have guns had them. And there was basically an effort to make sure that the, you know, the gentle class had access to guns, but everybody else it was sort of control. Basically, the gold rush changes the dynamic really dramatically in terms of the general history of gun control in our, our country because masses of people coming uh, created a situation where you've got robbers who've got guns so they can rob people at the goldfields or on their way to or from the goldfields. And then all of the people, the miners, would-be miners travelling to and from the goldfields, then, of course, want guns for self-defence against robbery. And so the goldfields end up as this this place with high concentrations of people all trying to make it rich, all living it a bit rough, uh, having an inordinate amount of of guns so that uh, governments get a bit worried about this obviously. And so in the 1850s, you see the first concerted efforts to control um, who can have guns and where they can carry them. And in your research, Nick, was there much kind of backlash to those early attempts to um, to regulate gun ownership? 
yes and no. Uh, in, in one sense, most people didn't have any idea of the right to bear firearms as we, you know, as it's now conceived in America. That's a very recent phenomenon. The, the gentle classes, though, sort of have a, a naturalised almost sense of entitlement, and that's what scotches it. Uh, the, the 1852 law that does get passed in New South Wales to try and regulate guns does get repealed by the end of the decade, and that's essentially because the gentle merchant uh, classes, the squatters and the politicians all like to go shooting uh, as a recreational activity. And so they're the ones who really dislike the way the laws inhibit what they can do and where they can do it, and so they're the ones who organise it and, and see the end of it. It's not really the lower classes. It's just sort of, you see the people storming Michigan's legislature at the moment with guns. Mm. It's not really that sort of type of person. It's, it's much more the, the aristocracy of the colony, if you will. Nick Brody's with us. He's written a book, Under Fire, How Australia's Violent History Led to Gun Control. And your example that you just used there, Nick, highlights why gun control uh, remains topical and, and, as you've just outlined, goes back hundreds of years here in Australia. Where are we at, do you think, with the social consensus around guns now? I mean, we do have the the Shooters and Fishers Party. Um, I mean, there is, um, I suppose, a diversity of views around how strong gun control should be and, and the kinds of weapons that should or shouldn't be available to who. Where, where are we at, do you think? I think the thing we need to remember is that we have a very long history of a social consensus in Australia that guns are dangerous and have to be regulated, and that's the baseline. We do not have a tradition of a free-for-all in Australia. Anybody who says that is just completely off the charts and has no idea of Australia's history. We have a very strong consensus that guns are dangerous and need to be regulated. What we have growing, however, is a, a diversity of opinion about the effect, efficacy of the National Firearms Agreement and a growing um, uh, weight of ideology coming through American channels and sort of being written in American ways. So a lot of that Shooters and Fishers Party stuff about the, the idea of gun ownership being something that state, only states should regulate and not the federal government, for instance, which is something they often say is really an Americanism. It really comes from America. The federal government in Australia was uh, actively controlling gun imports and sort of helping to manage gun control laws, even though not as effectively as since 1996. Since the 1920s, uh, Australia has a long history of that. So does America for that instance. Um, but that small minority that really wants to wind back the laws uh, are still in the minority in Australia. But... They are growing, and I think they're growing because that sense of what it was really like has been lost, which is one of the reasons I thought it was important to, to address this topic so that people can remember it's not just mass shootings and massacres, but the spectacular sort that attract you know, media attention, rolling news coverage for several weeks on end and then get forgotten about until the next thing. It's more that everyday mishap and accident uh, in Farms and suburbs around Australia, which drove most gun laws. Yeah, the kids grabbing the gun that wasn't wasn't kept away properly and was loaded, and the catastrophe that resulted in too many families. That was very strong, um, as you write about in your book. Yeah, and I think that's really easy to forget that in Australia, you know, over every summer there would just be this wave of accidents as the children shot themselves and shot each other, and all sorts of catastrophic, horrific, horrific accidents. As well as that, you also had... I mean, ironically, farmers often accused of being the ones who want to reform the gun laws, but they were often very progressive in terms of wanting gun law reform because 
their stock were constantly being threatened by suburban recreational shooters. You know, people from the suburbs of Sydney and Melbourne who would get on a train and go out into the country and just wander across their farms and fire at anything and, and shoot animals left, right and centre. As I was reading your book, Nick, I was kind of thinking a lot about whether things could have been different in Australia and if we could have, you know, gone down the more sort of um, gun toting or, or um, championing the right to bear arms that's kind of happened and, and really picked up pace in, in the US over recent decades. And I was thinking about events such as the Eureka Stockade, which has become such a, um, you know, a symbol of, of workers' rights and so on, but is never really spoken about as in the terms of the right to bear arms or anything like that. And we've seen through the history of gun regulations and registration being introduced in 1940, for example, up to um, the aftermath of Port Arthur, that people have really broadly complied with um, efforts made by governments to, uh, you know, curtail exactly who can own guns and the types of guns they can own and registering those as well. What does that kind of reveal to you in terms of Australia as a culture? I mean, are we generally sort of law-abiding and and, um, very much, uh, you know, defer to authority in these types of instances? Yeah, I think we tend to think of ourselves as very much the rebellious larrikin nation that doesn't like, you know, likes to stick out. You're up at authority, but that's not really how democracies work. You know, the government's passed a law because of the democratic uh, pressure to enact those laws, and so we're obeying the laws because we're the ones who've pushed for them. You can see this in in towns and cities across Australia. You know, the, the presented by the pistol in the 1920s prompted people to encourage their politicians to change the laws. Mm. The danger, you know, the, the incredible threat posed by fully automatic weapons after World War II encouraged people to work with government to ensure that they weren't uh, common. What happens later, and Australia and America follow a similar track, but America then diverts widely, I think, is that after the, basically, the Viet, Korea, Vietnam War eras, because usually there's a sequence of wars create a new gun technology and a new gun market, which creates a problem. Uh, in the mid-20th century, it's the semi-automatic, uh, which is really a, a, a military weapon designed to kill people, uh, which then gets turned into a, a consumer hunting rifle, if you will. Um, and so what happens is basically American manufacturers are bigger. The NRA there is bigger. And so it's a, it's a scale issue, I think, that really creates the political uh, difference there, whereas Australia doesn't have their own gun manufacturers, so it doesn't have its own gun lobby, at least not, not as effectively as America does. And so that pushback doesn't really work quite as effectively here as it did there, but it was certainly here. There were certainly elements of that here. In fact, being imported from America, there's close ties between the NRA and the sporting shooters and so on um, from sort of the 1940s on. And you, you said earlier, um, you know, at least one of the motivations for writing this book, having a look at the history of, of gun control in Australia is to, you know, ward against that kind of myth-making, I suppose. Um, do you think that other countries might use this history also um, to learn from it, um, to see what made the most difference if Australia really is one of the countries around the world with the strongest and, I suppose, most uh, long-standing series of gun control measures Nick? Yes, certainly. I think Australia's story... So Australia and New Zealand, and we've just seen with Canada recently, we all have the same history. What we all have is a period of intense gun control reform through the 1870s into the 1930s. 
as guns become cheap and common and dangerous. And that's the real formative period where most of our ideas about gun licensing, gun registration, uh, age limits and so on develop. And we all share that. We share that with the US of A as well. And what happens is in the later 20th century, there's sort of a, a slackening, if you will, and a political diversity, and it becomes more of a political issue rather than a public health, common sense sort of issue, um, so that all of those countries then gradually slowed and stopped reforming their gun laws as effectively as they had in the past, uh, which led to the situations of, of catastrophe. So with us, it was Port Arthur, uh, Christchurch, New Zealand, and just recently in Canada, you see the same sort of thing. Basically, when gun laws are not constantly being revisited, then that's where you sort of end up with a problem because they then become too out of date to deal with the problems, whether they're social or technological or whatever. So I think it's really crucial that other nations do. They don't just look at Australia and see the miss of us having had a massacre that we then resolved with Port Arthur. You know, Port Arthur's very important, the Port Arthur massacre. National Firearms Agreement, of course, is an important part of the story. But it's not the all end of the story. Behind the scenes, there was 200 years of gun law reform and development. And so other countries would have those similar traditions, including the USA, have similar traditions of... Uh, legislating for the control of firearms. In the 1920s, Australia looked to New York to deal with the pistol crisis, for instance. So uh, other countries, I think, could look at our story and see that it's actually something that you can always pick up on. Um, you will find your own traditions there as well. It's interesting also to, to kind of... Um to note that sort of long history, but also the political sort of pragmatism involved in 1996 when the Howard government introduced those, um, you know, famous uh, gun control measures and, and, you know, the likes of Tim Fisher kind of staring down, you know, colleagues and, and constituents within the National Party who might not have been so inclined to support the um, the, the exact nature of, of the gun control measures that were introduced by the government. So, I mean, we've seen, um, you know, to some extent, I guess to a lesser extent in Australia than elsewhere, but the rise of popular and that sort of thing. I mean, do you think that Australia's uh, willingness to embrace gun control measures and, and mitigate the kind of um, desire for people to kind of hold guns as kind of a right, which isn't sort of a, a really um, a strong kind of ideological uh, thing that's kind of developed in Australia, do you think that is something that is very much kind of locked in in this particular country and, and Australian culture? I think Australian culture certainly has the capacity to, to invent a right to bear arms. Uh, so we often think of ourselves as a, a stable democracy, uh, world leaders, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and we are. And uh, but countries that then rest on their laurels with that sort of thinking are sometimes the ones that run into trouble. And that's exactly what happened with the Port Arthur massacre. Basically, is that after a very intense period of gun law reform in the mid 20th century, it slowed down and stopped, and then it became bifurcated, and each state did its own thing, and it's. It then rapidly became a political issue, a party political issue sometimes as well, which means that uh, things didn't happen as, as effectively as they could and we slid into a situation where that's were not all on the same page. And so even with that, you can see basically within a generation uh, we can go from being a country that widely endorses a gun reform to one which is uh, pushing back against it sufficiently intensely that it has become stuck in the politics of our 
our democracy. And I think that could happen if Australia is not careful. If we allow people to buy into the idea that Australians have a right to bear arms and a libertarian view of their own history, where they used to be able to do whatever they wanted until 1996, then of course we risk backsliding. So it's really important to remind everybody uh, that that's not part of our story, that the, sh the emergence of shooters' parties, for instance, is tied to uh, the emergence of recreational shooting from the suburbs. It's got very little to do with the country districts. The country districts at the time that these organisations formed were actually against that sort of shooting. Uh, so they've flipped the narrative in a way, and it's important for us to remember that. Uh, Nick, it's been great to have you on Triple R. Thanks so much. And I suppose just we're living through a period where we're seeing how important consensus around certain things are and but also how hard it is to kind of maintain it um, even when we want it to be there. So, um, yeah, your book's very timely. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. And Nick Brodie, his uh, book, Under Fire, How Australia's Violent History Led to Gun Control, is out via Hardy Grant's books if you want to get your hands on it. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.